Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Wellness Plus podcast. Today, we have our main host, Karina Rachel, and she will be interviewing Dr. Philip Oob. Dr. Oob has been on our show numerous times, and today he's going to come in and talk all about blood pressure, um, some myths that are associated with blood pressure, and how you can really kind of get on top of your blood pressure to make sure you're you know, living healthy. Um, it was a very interesting podcast. He has some really cool hints and tips for you. And he also kind of debunked a lot of really common misconceptions when it comes to understanding how blood pressure works. Um, today's podcast is, as always, brought to you by our Psychic Truth patrons, as well as our Yoga Plus app. So make sure you check both of those out. Um, and also, please, 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 if you, uh, whenever you finish up with this podcast, go ahead and leave a review for us. That way we know what to bring you guys and what, what you guys like. So please, if you have the time, whether you like the podcast, whether you didn't, what can we do better, leave us a review. All right, guys, enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Philip Oob. He is a doctor of functional medicine, and today we are talking about blood pressure. So thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It's always lovely to have you back. Thanks. It's fun to be here. So blood pressure is definitely an important aspect of our health. We know that heart disease is one of the leading killers, if not the leading it killers. Is the leading killer, correct. So when it comes to blood pressure, we've heard so many different things. Um, and one of the biggest ones is about salt. Um, so that's my first question. Um, is salt really the biggest danger to our blood pressure? And is it as important for us to be avoiding salt as most of us think that it is? No, is the easy <laughs> answer. Um, I love salt and I can't imagine eating food without salt. Although I've heard that people can get acclimated to low salt foods, but the whole low salt idea, the DASH diet, all that stuff that came out for low, for high blood pressure in order to lower blood pressure, it, it kind of looks like smoke and mirrors when you look back because it was never about salt. Only about 20% of people or less are actually salt sensitive, which mm. means if they reduce salt from their diet, that they will um, reduce their blood pressure. The remaining 80% out there will have no effect at all. Your kidneys are remarkable at removing salt. That's one of the things they do. That's, they're supposed to have salt. In fact, without salt, we kind of die a little bit, and that's mm -hmm. not good either. So we all need salt, and that's not a—it's not a big component at all with blood pressure. If you're having high blood pressure, there's numerous other reasons that you may have high blood pressure. And yes, you might be able to falsely lower it by lowering your salt intake, but ultimately, that's not getting at the root cause. So as we age, no one really knows many young kids with high blood pressure, although it is getting more common in the diabetes and stuff in, in children. Mm -hmm. But Almost everyone knows an older person, and you can define older however you want to, an older person with high blood pressure. And it, it's, a, it's a phenomenon of aging, but it's really more of a question of like, well, why does it happen as we age? Because there's plenty of people out there that are aging without blood pressure issues. So what are they doing to protect themselves from blood pressure? So it is true that high blood pressure is one of the leading causes of heart disease. It's called the silent killer because there are no symptoms of it until you have that first heart attack or that first stroke or whatever it may be. People will say it's headaches, it's eye pain, all that blurry vision. But that's pretty rare when people are actually sensitive to high blood pressure. So no, to answer your question in a long roundabout fashion, it's not about salt at all. Okay. And then is it important to distinguish between maybe like which salt we're eating? So sea salt has gotten a lot of attention, has become kind of a, a popular thing in the world of, of health food. Um, is there a difference between eating sea salt and maybe like the typical table salt or ionized salt that most of us are familiar with? You know, that's a good question. I have to say I haven't done a ton of research into it. I myself also use pink Himalayan sea salt. I think you mentioned that before we went on air. Yeah. And um, it is kind of the latest trend and everyone's doing it. So I jumped on the bandwagon. But no, I, I don't think the different types of salt you choose to eat or consume are going to be any different. Um, now, that's not to say that restaurants aren't using different types of salts and stuff that may cause more blood pressure issues. But even so, I go back to that. It doesn't matter. Your kidneys are really good at removing salt, whether it's iodinated or not. Right. I don't think it's the issue. And then in just in terms of, um, I guess, amount of sodium that we're consuming, 
if you're eating a really high amount of sodium, does that become a potential cause of high blood pressure? It really shouldn't. I mean, your kidneys are absolutely incredible at doing it. You've got hormones that are created in order to eliminate salt. Your, your blood pressure and blood volume is tightly regulated by your adrenal glands um, and your heart, your kidneys. They're, they're, it's a kind of a trifecta. If any one of them is sensing either too much blood volume or the heart's beating too hard or there's, there's sensor regulations all over your body, if they're throwing off at all, there's constant hormones circulating around telling the kidneys dump more salt because the body doesn't actually collect water or remove water. That's that's a common uh, misconception. The body can't regulate water at all. So all it does is regulate salt. Mm. As it regulates salt, water follows salt. So if you're eating a lot of salt, you get really thirsty. Well, why is that? Because your salt levels in your blood goes up. So your body thinks, oh, I need more water. Well, you drink more water and then what happens? Your blood volume expands and then your kidneys and heart say, hey, there's too much water on board. Get rid of salt. So then you pee out salt. And when you, you don't pee out salt, obviously you pee out water. Right. So as your kidneys dump salt, you dump water. And so it, it's a tightly controlled system that works in perfection. It's Interesting. incredible. So this idea of water retention is maybe less about the amount of water you're consuming and more about the salt or other electrolytes that you're consuming. Absolutely. And the health of your cells. So the idea that we're, we're made of, I don't remember how many million or billion cells in total, but each cell is, is can be kind of deflated and dehydrated. Mm. So if the inside of a cell, if a cell can't get that salt or those nutrients inside it and kind of deflate and lose water. And so, yeah, deflated cell is not healthy. You can drink as much water as you want to, but if it's just passing by the cell, not able to get inside of the cell because the cell doesn't have the nutrients, then yeah, it's very possible to be have clear urine that means you're hydrated quote unquote but mm -hmm. actually have kind of dehydrated cells unhealthy cells are dehydrated and just kind of shrunken the other misconception as far as the water weight that people frequently um, misconceive is that when they're eating poorly they they have all this weight gain and then when they all of a sudden eat clean for a day they can drop three pounds and 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 that's water weight but it's not really water weight but people don't understand as you um you store sugar in your liver you store about three pounds or three days worth of sugar in your liver. And the reason why your body doesn't store sugar as as storage, we store fat, is because sugar requires a lot of water to hold on to. Mm. Um, same thing, if you, if you pour sugar in a glass of water, you can see it dissolves really quickly, but it takes a sizable amount of water. If you pour fat or oil into a water, it just separates completely. It takes no water to hold on to fat. So we store fat as our fuel source, not sugar as our fuel source. And so whenever someone goes on a diet, they lose three, four, five pounds really quickly. It's not just sugar. It's actually the water they're losing that's storing the sugar and wow. vice versa. When you put that weight back on, it's not because you ate salt and you regained water weight. It's really because when you start eating poorly, you start eating more carbs and sugar, you store that carbs and sugar in your muscles and liver, and that's about three to five pounds of water weight. Interesting. Okay, so if it's not salt causing all the high blood, blood pressure issues, uh, then what is it? So numerous other things, numerous other things. I mean, in, in my work, it always goes down to what's going on in the gut. Where's the sources of inflammation? What are the sources of toxins? What are the hormone balances? Those are the main pillars of health, but it all starts in the gut. If you're feeding yourself the wrong foods, you know, you, you, if there's garbage in, there's going to be garbage out. So it's got to, we've got to clean the diet. We've got to clean up the gut. Whatever bacteria, fungus overgrowth has happened over time from eating poor foods triggers inflammation. The body has some inappropriate de defense mechanisms when it starts getting inflamed. And high blood pressure seems to be one of them. It's, it's false to think that we know exactly why the body gets high blood pressure. But you can kind of see if, if you do people's advanced testing and you look at their insulin markers, you look at their blood sugar, you look at their inflammation markers, their oxidative stress, it, it always correlates. Someone that's got high blood pressure always has some sort of marker of that. How those directly correlate, we don't really know. We know all hormones are connected. So if you're eating too much sugar, you've got too much insulin. If you've got too much insulin, you commonly have too much estrogen if you're a female, and that's linked to PCOS. How does sugar cause estrogen issues? It seems loosely connected, but mm -hmm. the, the phenomenon is there. Even conventional medicine understands that if you have too much sugar and you have PCOS, they put you on metformin or reduce the sugar. Or I think I said that backwards. If you have PCOS in conventional medicine, they're going to put you on metformin to reduce your sugar levels, which helps PCOS. So the, insulin, the, the hormones are all connected. So mm -hmm. same thing in high blood pressure. High blood pressure I mainly look at is a hormone problem. So if you've got high blood pressure, it means your blood pressure hormones, aldosterone, cortisol, adrenaline, those are too high. 
why are they too high? Your kidneys, uh, your kidney or your adrenal, adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys, regulate that hormone very tightly, and they tell the kidneys what to do. So why is that off? And then, as we were talking before the camera came on, is nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a hormone made by the inside lining of your blood vessel. And as we age, we start damaging that inside lining. It's called the endothelium. And if you start damaging that endothelium, it can't make nitric oxide. If you start putting a bunch of plaque underneath it, then it just kind of separates from the blood supply and it can't make nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is what dilates and opens the blood vessel. If your blood vessel, blood vessels are too cramped down, then they can't open up and relax. Then now you have high blood pressure. Wow. So the the whole nitric oxide story. Um, if anyone's watched Forks Over Knives, the the documentary, they have the best explanation of nitric oxide that um, you can ever find. In fact, you can go to YouTube and just Google nitric oxide forks over knives. And it will go to Dr. Esselstyn's explanation with a fabulous video that goes along with it to help you understand what nitric oxide is and how it works. It's in every cell of your body because every cell of your body has a blood supply or it's dead. Mm -hmm. So nitric oxide is everywhere because you have blood vessels everywhere. And if you can't make enough nitric oxide, you can basically develop high blood pressure. Interesting. And then um, I guess what are the things that we can do to support our body's ability to make nitric oxide? Uh, so I think that's still mostly being mapped out in medicine, but there are a few things we've learned that have helped. So beets in the past couple of years have gotten really popular with beet juice, and there's a company called um, Neo40. They renamed themselves Human In. Um, I don't know if you've seen them, but they're actually an Austin-based company. They're, cool. they're worldwide, but they are an Austin-based founded here. And um, they made the beet elite powders and beet stuff, beet juice, and all kinds of stuff to market to raising nitric oxide. The the story goes that they were actually making a drug out of this beet stuff uh, because it's so powerful at reducing uh, blood pressure and raising nitric oxide levels. But as they were coming down to it, it was too close of a food, so they decided to abandon drug um, application and stuff and mm -hmm. went down the supplement route. And so that's why we have Neo40 as a supplement and not a drug. And so, um, so that's an easy way to get better nitric oxide. I know when I'm training for my triathlons and stuff, I typically do some extra Neo40. They come in dissolving tablets or packets. So you can dump the packets in water or you can dissolve the tablets once or twice a day. They taste good. It's beets. Yeah, beets are great. And then if you're just eating beets a couple times a week, is that going to be a helpful? Do you know anyone that eats beets a couple times a week? Let's be honest. <laughs> All right. You know, my biggest obstacle with beets is just the preparation of yeah, them. Get red but, stuff everywhere. And, and, well, I like that, that it kind of looks really? like you're on the set of The Walking Dead oh. when you're cooking with beets. Um, but, I once you know, tricked my son into eating beets. We were at Whole Foods, and he pointed to some food in the window. I was, I was getting some food, and I'm pretty sure he thought they were chocolate. And when he stuck his fork in it, I thought, well, that's a little unusual for chocolate, and he ate it. You could tell he had this like weird look on his face, like that wasn't chocolate. But he ate them. Kids will eat things if they're, they're not too scared of it. And he was only like three at the time. Wow. Beets well, and to have beets when you're expecting chocolate also <laughs> is a little – be a little offsetting. Um, and then what about uh, L-arginine? Oh, is that something that also can be helpful or? Not really. So I'm not a big fan of L-arginine at all. And when nitric oxide and this uh, Neo40 stuff got really popular, the L-arginine supplements seemed to hit the, the um, shelves at the same time. And so L, the, the pathway from L-arginine to nitric oxide looks really simple when you simplify it down in a diagram. But if you really pull up the biochemical pathway, it is a very long, tedious pathway. Pathway, mm. And there's numerous stops along the way. So you can consume as much L-arginine as you want. It's in food and there's plenty of supplements to take. But there, there's too many stops along the way. It doesn't do anything to take more L-arginine. In fact, there was a, this was a small study, so I shouldn't rely on it too much, but I kind of do. There was a study where they gave L-arginine to heart failure patients because they're like, oh, nitric oxide is the main problem in heart failure. Your blood vessels are too cramped down. Your heart's not pumping strong enough. You need more nitric oxide. So they gave them L-arginine. They actually did worse. And I don't want to say died because I don't, it's been a long time since I saw the study, but they did worse. Interesting. Um, and so now that's a heart failure population. Majority of us and people listening are probably not heart failure patients, but if the sickest of us get worse, we probably shouldn't be using that. And L, using that much L-arginine is not found in nature, whereas mm. beets are. Right. So th that makes a little more sense. A big stop feature in creating your nitric oxide is actually methylfolate. 
And that can get into a whole another, I can talk another hour about methylation. So methylation is a big deal as far as detoxification, making energy. Um, it works in neurotransmitters and, and many other things. But most people, 70% of the population have a mutation in an enzyme called the MTHFR enzyme. It's really popular. Um, everyone knows MTHFR. And so if you have a mutation there, it means you may not process your folic acid as well. So when you're eating your beets or your carrots or vegetables, you eat folic acid. But if you can't activate the folic acid into methylfolate, you get into a kind of a backup. Um, mm. And so the the people with low nitric oxide, one of the things you can do to boost nitric oxide is simply methylfolate. That is not found in nature. That's one of the few products I use that's not a natural product. It is uh, metabolized or activated for you but it helps you produce more nitric oxide, helps detoxify. And as we talked about in the beginning, um, high blood pressure is basically an inflammation state and or hormone imbalance. So if methylfolate helps you produce more nitric oxide and detoxifies and makes energy, you've now reduced your blood pressure. The normal dose of methylfolate is 400 to 1,000 micrograms per day, but I always recommend it in a B complex with all the B vitamins, not just methylfolate by itself. Okay. And then is that a supplement that would be safe for someone to take if they didn't know whether or not they had that Absolutely. mutation? Anyone okay. can take methylfolate. I pretty much put all of my patients on methylfolate. Okay. But 70% of the population has it. And if you don't need it, you just urinate it out. It's a water-soluble vitamin. You can't OD on water-soluble vitamins. In fact, there's a prescription drug using methylfolate called Deplin. And so the dose I just said was 1,000 micrograms. They make a 15,000 microgram dose. And I think they even got approved for 30,000 micrograms at one point. So if people can take 15,000 and live, I think it's okay if you take 400. Okay. All right. That sounds excellent. Um, So what would be the next, I guess, factor in in blood pressure? We kind of touched on salt, um, nitric oxide, methylfolate. Um, Where does the element of physical activity come in? So that's a good question. Actually, it's part of the nitric oxide discussion because sunlight actually has, we, we, someone, I forget who, the researcher has proven that sunlight causes release of nitric oxide. So this whole idea of, oh, we all need more vitamin D, we don't get enough sunlight, so we need more vitamin D. But the vitamin D replacement stuff has been a little bit of a wash compared to like what we would expect from it. Like, oh, your vitamin D levels are great compared to terrible. Why aren't you doing better? And the right. idea is that we get more from sunlight than maybe we fully understand. Yes, it creates vitamin D, but someone proved that it actually makes nitric oxide around our body. So if you think about physical activity, a lot of people nowadays work out in gyms and they're swimming in a pool indoors or basically a lot of activity. A lot of our stuff is indoors. We're indoors right now. And so if you don't have that outdoor activity, getting the sunlight, then you can't make as much nitric oxide. So that's my last point on nitric oxide. I, I promise I'll stop beating that horse. Um, but exercise is definitely a big component of blood pressure. I think it's, yeah, it's number seven on my list of, of eight factors. Um, and, and the weird part is exercise is a stressor, right? So whenever I'm asking people what their de-stressors are, they'll almost always, um, they'll say, oh, well, well, um, treadmill or running or boxing or whatever it may be. That's a stressor. So it may be a mental de-stressor, mm-hmm. but exercise is a physical stressor. But as it turns out, we need physical stressors in order to understand what a physical de-stress looks like. So exercise definitely helps the blood pressure, but the same thing is too much of something is a bad thing. So Mm. too much exercise is a bad thing. Too little exercise is a bad thing. So yes, you need that up and go. You need that high intensity. Um, I, I also talk to people who they walk five miles. That's great, but well, we're in Austin, so walking five miles is a big deal. <laughs> right. But, I mean, you need to get in there. You need to be jogging. You need to be huffing and puffing. You need to stimulate that body into a different gear that it doesn't normally see when you're working on a computer or sitting at a desk. Mm-hmm. So the usual rule is if you can sing while you're working out, you're not going hard enough. You should not be able to carry a tune because you're breathing too heavily. Okay. Um, I can't carry a tune even if I'm sitting. So. <laughs> That's an advantage for me. But but in honesty, I think a lot of people don't work out enough. Some people work out too much, but that is an important part of reducing blood pressure. Right. So just kind of finding that happy medium, so to speak. We'd like to briefly interrupt this interview to remind you that this podcast was made possible by listeners just like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychetruth where you can watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peaks. 
Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychetruth. That's patreon.com slash p-s-y-c-h-e-t-r-u-t-h. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, being very sedentary, um, is that a large factor? Absolutely. And so it kind of feeds into one of our my other points of if you're too sedentary, what do you do? You gain weight. If you gain weight, now you're obese, now your neck is bigger, and now when you sleep, you get sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is a top, top, top contributor of high blood pressure. Mm. So the idea is as you're awake, your blood pressure is average or ideal. And then as the day goes on, stressors, your blood pressure rises, you go to the dentist, your blood pressure rises even more, whatever it may be. But when it comes time for nighttime, our blood pressure starts to shrink or decrease. And then when you go to sleep, it's supposed to dip even further. But if you have sleep apnea, it's like someone's choking you intermittently throughout the night. So what happens is every time you get choked you, start, mm-hmm. you have to wake yourself up in order to not be choked uh, by your own tongue. So that means your blood pressure rises. It may not even rise high, but this whole phenomenon of you stop dipping. So we call these people non-dippers. So if, you, if your blood pressure doesn't dip overnight, then it seems to rise more during the daytime. And if you do this for years and years or decades, what happens is you basically end up with high blood pressure. So anyone with high blood pressure needs a sleep study or a spouse, or a partner in the bed, or a snore lab app, or something to say, am I snoring? Because snoring is directly equivalent to sleep apnea. If you snore loudly, you almost always have sleep apnea. If you're obese, if you have a thick neck, the other common one that I see is a recessed chin. So if just by your anatomical features, your chin is slightly recessed. Now you're like, wait, I know, I'm like, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So depending on how far your chin is from your throat gives you a distance that increases your risk of sleep apnea. And so that's something that most people don't even realize they have right. unless they get tested. Um, and that's a big deal in the, the blood pressure world. Because if someone with really severe sleep apnea, you can put a CPAP machine on them and then their blood pressure drops within usually a couple months without any medication. Wow. I mean, that is kind of a therapy, but not a, a drug. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting, you know, we know that sleep is really essential for our health in all of these different ways. Um, But I didn't realize the connection between sleep and blood pressure in that way, and that it could actually cause like a chronic blood pressure problem over the course of your life. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's getting more common is, I don't know if you've seen the aura rings or the new Apple watches can do heart rate variability. And so that heart rate variability overnight is, is a good indicator of health and how well you slept. So we'll check the heart rate variability, which which that means the distance between each heartbeat should be very variable based on any circumstance. Like if you breathe deeper, that rate should change. Or if you move, that rate should change. So that your mm-hmm. heart rate, um, the difference between each heart rate should always be very different. Not just we would think like a nice steady heart rate would be a good thing, but that's actually a bad thing. And so if you have sleep apnea, you'll flatten that heart rate variability. And the other thing that will happen is instead of your pulse or heart rate dipping and having a nice low resting heart rate, you have a higher resting heart rate because you're intermittently being choked all night. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love to do in my office is a really fun experiment. Anyone can do this, okay? So you go, if you have sleep apnea and you look at your report um, and you see that the lowest oxygen saturation you hit was like 78% or 82%. That's how much oxygen is is attached to your, your red blood cells. And you can measure it. It's an easy device. You buy on Amazon, I think like 10 bucks, and you put it on your finger and you can see that it registers pretty much everyone 96 to 100%. No, no problems. What I'll tell my patients to do is I'll show them their report and say, hey, you hit 85% at night while you were sleeping. I want you to do something for me. I want you to hold your breath as long as you can physically hold it, like painfully hold it as long as you possibly can. And I want to see how low you can push that. To date, no one has ever gone below 92% while awake. So then I tell them, you went to 85% while you were sleeping. So what that means is that you held your breath breath so long while you were asleep that you went further than you could even while you were awake. You were suffocating. You were temporarily suffocating. How do you imagine a sleep when the definition of sleep apnea, the the minimum times that can happen per hour before your diagnosis with sleep apnea is 15. So if that's happening 15 (laughs) times an hour, you now have mild sleep apnea. Just mild. It's just mild. 15 times (laughs) 15 times an hour. But there's this huge window (laughs) before you even have the diagnosis of mild sleep apnea. So that just puts into perspective how much you can suffocate yourself while you're sleeping without even knowing. And you sleep through it because you're in that that stage of sleep that you don't have a memory. So Mm -hmm. you, you wake yourself up to breathe, but you don't remember it. Interesting. And then you get poor sleep. You get higher blood pressure or non-dipping, and then you die earlier. And that sucks. Nobody likes that. 
Right. And then you just think about, you know, how poor sleep affects you on a day-to-day basis anyways, and your energy level to get that exercise and Mm -hmm. your energy level to make healthier decisions. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely so interconnected and intertwined. Um, what would be the next uh, the next point here for factors in blood pressure? Good question. I, I'm actually going to jump to number five because it, it goes straight into what we were just talking about with sleep apnea is is stress in your adrenal glands. Um, you're, I mean, we're American. By definition, we are stressed. I mean, if, if we're not stressed, then we will find something else to put on our plate until we get stressed. And then there's always a curve around every corner in life, no matter what it is. Every mm-hmm. month, there's something new. You rewind, you're like, God, we can't wait till this is over. And next month, oh, wait, next month, something else is going to happen that you didn't predict or didn't see coming. Right. So as Americans, we're always running on full throttle. We're always stressed. And um, that, let's face it, there's only so much stress you can have inside your body before it comes out in some way, form, or fashion. And what that looks like is high blood pressure for many, many, many people. So this is actually one of the easier correlations to make as far as stress and blood pressure. And even lay people that don't know anything about blood pressure, if you if we check someone's blood pressure in the office and it's high, like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, give me a minute. Let me calm down. And then you check it again. Like, everyone knows that stress causes high blood pressure. But if you diagnose someone with high blood pressure and then the first thing they're going to ask is, well, how can I reduce this? The first answer should be, well, you can reduce your stress. It's the number one thing you have control over. But what about bills and what about this? Stress, the stress sores does not matter nearly as much as your perception of the stress. Mm. So you've got a burning building and you've got 10 people standing outside. There's always one running around screaming, oh, my God, everyone's going to die. We're dying. Everything's terrible. And there's always another person who's calm and collected trying to come up with a plan, calling the fire department. Same stressor two different perceptions of the stress, right. right? Same thing when someone pulls out in front of you. You can go guns blazing, birds firing, screaming cuss words. Doesn't change anything. The other option is just, oh, well, no one got hurt. He pulled out in front of me. Let him go. It's not worth my adrenal stress right. to worry about that person pulling out. So same stressor, different perception of the stress. So the most important part as we go through our life is not to stress about the stressors, identify them, understand that they're stressors, and don't let them affect you or have planned time. If you are a worry or stressor, then you need to set aside time and say, this is my de-stress time. And between these minutes or seconds or whatever you can pencil in, I'm just not going to stress. Because just like the the sleep apnea person who doesn't dip, if your de-stressors or stressors never dip, you were constantly heightened and higher and higher and higher over time. So the number one thing, and it sounds hokey as all get out to reduce your stress in order to reduce your blood pressure, but it's totally real. And it looks different for every person. So is that meditation? Is that wearing an app to have someone guide you? Is that um, we've got these new Sayo glasses in our office and it, it flashes different lights and plays different meditation things. And it's all designed around trickery and distraction to try to get you to stop thinking about life and everything happening to you. Mm-hmm. Look at like, why are these lights flashing my face? And it's distraction. So whatever you need to, to just check out from reality for a second and realize that I am breathing, I am alive, there's no lion chasing me. How do I de-stress? in a stressful environment. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite, most boring books is, um, it's called Why Do Zebras Not Get Ulcers? I messed that up. Zebras don't get ulcers, something like that. And the idea is zebras live amongst lions. So how do they not get stomach ulcers? They should be stressed all of the time. And the idea is that when the lion's hungry, it chases them. So if the lion is not chasing them, they're not stressed because there's no big deal. And when the lion does chase them and he knocks down Bob and eats Bob, and it's like, oh, well, sorry, Bob, but... The lion's fed. Now I don't have to stress over the lion. I don't have to get a stomach ulcer. So the way our bodies are intended to work is when a stressor comes up, we are supposed to freak out, run, survive, sacrifice anything, live. But once that stressor's over, we're supposed to go back to calm and collected and chill and eating our grass and drinking our water inside a lion. No big deal. That's not how we live. We wake up. We're hitting the coffee. We're running. We're trying to get the kids to school, camp, whatever it may be. And then we get to work. And then we're working 8 to 5. And we're working through lunch. And as soon as we get off at 5, got to go get the kids again. And then you see it just never mm-hmm. stops. So just like the sleep apnea person, how do we ever expect to not be stressed when you're running full throttle the whole time? And then you take Ambien to go to sleep because you're so wound up that you can't even, you know. So it seems so simple, but it is so hard to reduce your stress, but is a leading cause of blood pressure. So that was all the hokey side. So here's the why side. So every time you stress, you have these two little glands on either side of your kidneys called the adrenal glands, which I'm sure you are familiar with. 
but I like to start with the adrenal glands are called adrenal because they're on top of the kidney. Kidney means renal, ad means on top. Add renal on top of your kidneys. These little bitty triangular structures make all of the adrenaline, hence their name, adrenals, adrenaline, and they make all of the cortisol and the aldosterone. These are your blood pressure hormones. Adrenaline raises blood pressure. If you're running from a lion, you need lots of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So if you're stressed all day long, you're making lots of adrenaline. On top of that, you're making lots of cortisol. Cortisol is what I like to call the kind of sensitizer around the body, the whisperer. So cortisol on a daily basis, if you're stressed all day long at work, not sleeping well, your cortisol levels start to rise, your adrenal glands start making more and more and more of it. And the cortisol goes around the body, sensitizing the body, um, kind of whispering like cortisol's coming or uh, adrenaline's coming, adrenaline's coming, get ready. That's the cortisol. So if you're already stressed and already have too much cortisol, the body's already sensitive to adrenaline. Now, when someone pulls out in front of you, you make this little bitty adrenaline spike, but the body's already ready for it. So you have this huge adrenaline rush when it should have just been a little spike, no big deal. Mm. So um, with those two culprits, you raise your blood pressure naturally over time. And then the third culprit that's also made in the adren adrenal gland is called uh, aldosterone. Aldosterone makes you absorb more salt. So the more aldosterone you release, the more salt you absorb. And as you remember earlier in the podcast, the more salt you absorb, the more water you hold on to, the more water you hold on to, the more water in your blood vessels, the more water in your blood vessels, the higher your blood volume. Now you have high blood pressure. Too much volume in the pipes means high blood pressure. That was a long explanation. I'm sorry. I no, please don't apologize. <laughs> over that one. I'm passionate about hormones. And well, and I think it's so important. And you're right. You know, at the end of the day, there is no way that we can remove stressful things from our lives. Right. But there's a point where we have to take some responsibility for how we're going to respond to things and how we can um, do whatever it takes. Like you said, maybe a couple minutes couple seconds, whatever it is that you can pencil in and just know to take that time to de-stress um, because the pathway of all of the things that come just from that irritability, getting upset with someone, letting the anger or frustration or whatever really like ramp up and get the best of us, that has such a strong effect on all these other factors that, hey, you know what? It's worth it to set aside a couple minutes to do a meditation or a mm -hmm. yoga class or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people can um, approach this idea of self-care or just mm -hmm. trying to put your body into that parasympathetic, relaxed state. Um, it's really just about picking one and mm -hmm. picking the one that feels the most doable for you, the, the least... Uh, adverse. Because <laughs> um, I think for a lot of people, especially as you said earlier here in uh, the States where we're always on the go, we always want to do more. The idea of like taking time to sit down and, and not think about your day. Mm -hmm. I mean, this in itself is a challenge. Um, I think self-care is a challenge because the challenge is setting aside the time of all the other things that you want to do to do something that's good for you. Um, even though it's not going to necessarily uh, make you more money right now right. or it's going to whatever. You know, we, we just value our lives on all of these, um, you know, whether they're material things or our own, you know, standards of how much we want to accomplish every day. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's the biggest factor in our blood pressure, which is the biggest factor in our heart disease uh, potential, um, then clearly it's worth it to set aside that time for yourself and challenge yourself to find things that can help you relax. Yep. I'm glad you brought up the parasympathetic word because the, the idea is that our, our body, the yin and yang of our body, the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight and the parasympathetic is the rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And that is the exact system that controls your blood pressure. So your sympathetic nervous system is the one that actually has the nerves that cause the arteries to squeeze down. And the only thing that can turn off the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system that tells it, hey, stop doing that for a while, relax. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes the blood vessels to open up, which reduces the blood pressure. So yes, too much stress activates your sympathetic nervous response and too little de-stress. And, and that goes back to sleep apnea too. The sleep apnea, you're supposed to be resting and digesting overnight. I'm not really digesting, but um, resting overnight. Mm -hmm. If you're not resting, what are you doing? You're activated. And so more sympathetic tone overnight means more during the daytime. And it's one of those weird things in the body that it seems like if you have more of something at one point, you would have less of it at the other time, but it's not, it's a feed forward cycle. 
the more you feed that beast, the stronger it gets and the more powerful it gets and starts mm. dominating. So that's an inappropriate mechanism in our body. And there's almost everything you look at feeds the sympathetic beast instead of the parasympathetic rest and digest beast. So if you're not purposely penciling in that meditation or yoga, I love yoga for people. It doesn't really work for me for some reason. It's not my thing, but it's perfect for people. Go, just back to the, like I was mentioning, the sayo glasses and distraction. Holding your body in a very funny position that doesn't feel comfortable and isn't normal is totally mind-consuming of like, how am I, am I, is my arm straight or my fingers in yeah, line? Yeah, okay, thinking about my <laughs> left foot and my right hand and Oh, now my knee is hurting. Yeah. Yes, it's all distraction to not think about, oh, what are your kids doing? What about my bills? What about this? I need to do that. No, I'm focused on holding my fingers up in the air for this 10-second move or whatever it is. And so I love any kind of distraction of the physical that allows you to mentally de-stress because remember exercise is a physical stressor but it is a mental de-stressor so what i like about yoga is it does incorporate a little bit of exercise now there are some yogas that are some serious exercise yes Um, i get that (laughs) but if you're going to yoga for the de-stressor it should not be the exercise and they heavily focus on breathing right Mm -hmm. so there are very few things in the parasympathetic world that you can actually um uh, adjust on your own uh so you can breathe right you can poop and that's about it you get you can chew which kind of stimulates it so we don't have much control over that you can't say oh i want to lower my blood pressure or i want to digest that food or um i don't know what else does the parasympathetic system do that we can't control (laughs) whereas the sympathetic you want to move your arms you want to run you want to freak out you can do all those things so it's it really takes a conscious effort to stimulate that parasympathetic system because it's so easy to turn it off and do everything else right so Another thing that I've I've heard in relation to blood pressure um, is insulin. And mm-hmm. you talked earlier about other hormones and, and a lot of the kind of interplay between these different hormones. Um, so I've read that, you know, insulin stimulates that parasympathetic state. So is there a correlation between sugar or insulin and our blood pressure? Or is that kind of a non sequitur? Well, they're, they're definitely related. I mean, it, it, the, the, the triad in, in the holy triad in medicine is, is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes, right? Th- those three go hand in hand. So you know there's a connection whether you like it or not. Mm. Um, and, and so the idea of how does sugar directly cause blood pressure issues, I don't think is fully understood, or at least I don't fully understand it. Maybe someone smarter out there does. Kind of like the sugar and PCOS thing. But what we do know is an insulin state, a, a insulin resistant state is an inflammatory state as anything in the body. Too much exercise is a bad thing. Too little exercise is a bad thing. Same thing in the body. Too little insulin means you're type one diabetic and you're going to die. That's a problem. Too much insulin means you're insulin resistant diabetic and you're going to die. Um, you want that in between. Mm-hmm. So it, the body has all kinds of defense mechanisms and, ad- and adaptations to try and prevent bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. So the the theory is that this whole hyperinsulin state or too much insulin, too much insulin because you eat too many carbs and sugar, right? You eat carbs or sugar and your insulin goes up. The more insulin you make, the more carbs you eat, then the insulin stops responding. And if the insulin stops responding, the pancreas has to make even more to do the same job. And so this elevated level of insulin seems to affect other hormones around the body. But what we don't know is, is it really a direct cause or is it that eating too much carbs and sugar also stimulate the cortisol and the cortisol mm. is trying to manage the blood sugar in addition to the insulin and the cortisol is really what's causing the, the blood pressure and not the insulin. The, the truth is that all the hormones are, are connected. So if any one of them are off, you can get a problem. But definitely um, blood pressure is an inflammatory condition. In, in, in my mind, all disease symptoms, syndromes, whatever you want to call it, is based on inflammation and everyone has different types of inflammation and feels inflammation in different ways. Mm-hmm. So you have high blood, not you, someone has high blood pressure. That's one of their weaknesses. That's where they get inflammation. Why does their system do that? I don't know. But they get inflammation there. And what are their inflammatory triggers? Well, it's just like anyone else. Different people have different inflammatory triggers. Maybe it's gluten in your diet. Maybe it's too much sugar. Um, maybe it's nightshades, you know, which are tomatoes and peppers. You, you don't know unless you go down that healing journey. So to to make a simple answer with that is, yes, sugar is related to blood pressure, but sugar is just an inflammatory product. So it, mm-hmm. it's a link to cancer. It's linked to heart disease. It's linked to everything. Right. And then is it true that sugar um, 
is kind of abrasive on the blood vessels themselves? That's a good question. So earlier you mentioned AGEs, which are uh, most people don't know about, so advanced glycation end products. And so the, the sugar naturally attaches itself to proteins. And, and once you naturally attach a sugar to a protein, it, dis, it changes that protein and makes it uh, either dysfunctional or just completely useless. So we do mm. know that sugar attaches to blood vessels and maybe it's killing that endothelium and that endothelium is what makes nitric oxide and now it can't make nitric oxide because it had too much sugar attached to it. And, and as we know, one of the things we check regularly is blood sugar. So it's not common for the cells to have too much sugar in them. It's common for the highways or the blood vessels to have too much sugar in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the, if the bloodstream has too much sugar in it, the more sugar in there, the more sugar that attaches to proteins, and that starts to damage things and cause these advanced glycation end products, which basically is, I, I love the acronym AGE, right? Because it makes you age. It, it ages you quickly. The right. more sugar you eat, the earlier you die, period. The higher your sugar, the earlier you die, period. It's that simple. So, um, oh, I don't remember where I was going with that, that <laughs> thought. But it goes back to reducing sugar. Oh, I remember one more point I want to make. It still probably doesn't finish the thought. But um, everyone nowadays knows what an A1C marker is, especially if you're diabetic. A1C marker is your um, is your diabetes marker. So if it's over a certain level, you've got prediabetes, which is 5.7. If it's over 6.5, now you have diabetes um, type 2 or whatever type you may have. But what people don't understand is like, where did this come from? How did we get a, this, this, this marker is a 90 day average blood sugar. Well, how do you get a marker in the bloodstream that's a 90 day average blood sugar? Well, this hemoglobin A1C is an AGE. Basically the higher, the more blood, the more sugar in your bloodstream, the more sugar that attaches to your hemoglobin cells. Well, your red blood cell, which carries the hemoglobin, has a half-life of about 90 to 120 days. So that red blood cell gives you an idea of how much sugar has been in the bloodstream for the past 90 to 120 days. So the higher your blood sugar, the higher your A1C, it correlates with a higher blood sugar. That is an AGE. Basically, if you check your hemoglobin A1C, that is a measurement of your AGEs in your body. And now they've correlated um, dementia to basically type 3 diabetes. Dementia, Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes because it's too much sugar. Too much sugar is one of the causes of Alzheimer's. It's too much sugar has morphed all these proteins and created too many AGEs. And now you've got brain inflammation. Now you've got tau proteins and, and blockages that causes Alzheimer's. So sugar, I don't know where we got off on this track, but sugar (laughs) is definitely the root of all evil. And and I just want to make one more point in the fact that everyone always blames sugar, but carbs are just as bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm not the type to say everyone needs to be ketogenic, but certainly there's a difference between eating a sweet potato and pouring sugar on your food. But to your body, if you ate the same amount of sweet potato as you did sugar, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It may have hit you quicker in the table sugar form, but... A carb is a carb. It will still raise AGEs if you eat too much. Right. The podcast you are listening to was brought to you by wellnessplus.tv, a subscription service empowering you with everything you need to take control of your health and happiness. Sign up for your free trial today to watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to our extensive library, including hundreds of follow-along yoga and fitness courses, massage therapy tutorials, weight loss information, guided meditations, educational health videos, and so much more. Feel better, look better, and live better today by visiting wellnessplus.tv. And I think, you know, we keep kind of coming back to this concept of, of balance. Like you don't necessarily want too much and you don't mm-hmm. want too little. Um, I mean, I think the same thing kind of applies here. It's not necessary to go fully ketogenic Correct. or completely eliminate carbs from your diet. Um, but to just make a simple um, decision that you're going to do your best to limit those carbohydrates and, you know, the unfortunate thing, especially if people are still eating um, the processed foods or restaurant foods. And unfortunately, there's even, you know, frozen meals and stuff with the word healthy on them. Oh, yeah. Um, And so many of those uh, different foods, they're just so high. And whether we're talking about the carbs or the sodium or just the sheer volume of calories, you know, adding insult to injury just through the sheer volume of those things, um, we can do a lot just by working to like limit our carbs. 
Mm-hmm. Here's where we can make this, you know, simple switch in our diet or using the zucchini noodles instead of spaghetti noodles or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's an important thing, you know, for people, especially in my health coaching. It's difficult for people to do a really big change, like going right. on a ketogenic diet. Right. Um, but it's really easy for people to look at simple ways to start making little switches. And then once you just have the awareness that like, oh, yeah, I'm going to try and limit my carbs. I'm going to remember that the uh, the wheat and the potatoes and all of these things are, are sugar to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just have that awareness and start implementing that. And you can have a lot of benefits just that come from those kind of simple changes and switch outs. Agreed. And that's how you make permanent change. When you figure it out, do it the right way instead of something aggressive really quickly. That's why I made my changes. And my, my journey took a good three years of removing one thing at a time. I'm the typical stubborn guy that, oh, that doesn't affect me. That doesn't affect me. And so I, I always embrace wherever someone is at in their journey. Whatever, Where are you willing to start? We'll start there. Mm-hmm. Because like I saw a lady this morning who was like, oh, don't worry about gluten and dairy. Like that's such a I, – I have no problem eliminating gluten and dairy. It's not even a part of my diet anymore. Like I don't even think about it. I don't even look at it. It's not something that I even have to worry about. And that's that's fun to hear because what American is ever gluten <laughs> and dairy free without attend, like without knowing? It's right. in everyone's diet. It's everywhere. So once you, to your point, if you can make those small changes and make it a permanent change, it just becomes your new reality. Right. And it's not suffering anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so are there any more of course. points about blood pressure here? <laughs> you have a little list, so I think that's always helpful. So <laughs> the one thing that anyone and everyone can do is magnesium. Magnesium is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's easy to get. It, it's so helpful in the blood pressure world. And so many people are low in magnesium. So we talked a lot about salt, but salt is or magnesium is an electrolyte just like salt. And so everyone thinks about potassium and bananas and all that jazz, but it's almost all about magnesium. You need magnesium in order to reabsorb or potassium. So this idea that we need more bananas when we're working out or sweating or whatever is completely bananas. It needs to be (laughs) magnesium. And no one checks magnesium levels. Potassium, sodium, chloride, salt, those are regularly part of doctor's labs. Most people have never checked magnesium in them. And so my standard for magnesium, just a regular serum sample magnesium, is over 2.2. And I tell anyone and everyone that they can take magnesium, it is impossible to overdose on magnesium. You just poop your pants. It's that simple. So if you're not sure if you need more magnesium, just take more. And if you start to get liquid bowel movements, then maybe you took too much or maybe you took a bad quality version. So here's the deal with magnesium that most Mm. people don't know because everyone knows, oh, magnesium softens your stool. But a good, highly absorbable magnesium should not soften your stool. It should take a mega dose to soften your stool. So we use magnesium glycinate when we want it absorbed, glycinate, G-L-Y-C-I-N-A-T-E. So magnesium glycinate is highly absorbable. If you want it to soften your bowels, and you have to take like eight or 10 capsules. Whereas magnesium citrate, and the normal dose for magnesium glycinate is around 100, 120 milligrams per capsule. If you're going to take magnesium citrate, then it doesn't take nearly as much. I don't remember the milligrams as much as that because we use this natural calm stuff that comes in a scoop and we do it by a teaspoon. Um, And so if you do magnesium citrate, it doesn't take nearly as much to loosen your bowels. And why is that? They're both magnesiums. Well, it turns out that magnesium citrate isn't as absorbable. So any Mm. magnesium that stays in the bowels happens to loosen the bowels because it didn't get absorbed. So when we give magnesium IV, I can give a ton of magnesium IV and you'll get a little sleepy, but it doesn't do anything to the bowels. Why? Because you absorbed it all. You didn't have a choice. We gave it IV. So if you're taking magnesium for blood pressure, you want to use an absorbable kind. Magnesium glycinate, magnesium tartrate, 3 and 8, malate. Those are a few that you can use, but the standard one is magnesium glycinate. If you want to loosen your bowels, do magnesium citrate. And then if you want to waste your money, you buy magnesium oxide. That stuff is pointless. If you have in your cabinet, I don't care who you are, I don't care who you bought it from, I don't care where you got it, I don't care who promised what, throw it away. That stuff is crap. It does not work at all. Uh, Magnesium oxide is crap. Do I need to say it a third time? Magnesium oxide (laughs) is crap. It is the most common one you will see over the counter at Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, whatever. It's totally useless. Throw it away. Magnesium glycinate 
Make sure you get a good brand. And ultimately, if you can take 10 capsules and it does not loosen your bowels, then you're not taking magnesium. It is a waste. So um, the magnesium citrate that we usually use is the natural calm. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it comes in a little yeah. powder, kind of fizzes the water. People like it. works really great for bowels. You do. I did say it's a poorly absorbable one. You do absorb it. You just don't absorb that much. So if you were someone that is naturally constipated, then do the magnesium citrate. Get the double whammy out of it. Oh, it'll reduce your blood pressure and it'll help soften your bowels. And chances are, if you poop better, you'll probably reduce your blood pressure anyway. Because who doesn't like a good bowel movement? <laughs> you laugh because you know it's true. <laughs> you know what? You are so right about that. Um, so what would be one of the next points on your list as we're kind of coming to the closing of our podcast here? So the the next one's pretty easy. It's CoQ10. Um, and, and, and CoQ10 is a, a natural fat-soluble vitamin. It's mainly found in, in meats and, and organ meats, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of. I don't know if anyone else out there is. But um, so CoQ10 is is used inside the mitochondria, which actually makes energy. So to back up a little bit, every cell – so it, it's false to think that the liver makes energy for the whole body. It makes nutrients for the whole body, and then the cells have to uptake those nutrients and then actually turn it into energy. Every cell is responsible for its own energy supply. If it cannot make energy, it dies. And, and so every cell has mitochondria in it. Sometimes cells have hundreds. I think even like the liver cells have thousands of them per cell. But these mitochondria make the energy. And one of the key steps in trading off electrons so this mitochondria can make energy is found in CoQ10. So if you don't have enough CoQ10, you can't make energy. And there's, this, that's an oversimplified explanation that I even I don't fully understand all the ramifications of CoQ10. But um, one of the studies shows that if you supplement with CoQ10, you can actually reduce blood pressure. Majority of the people out there, their CoQ10 levels are around one. That's, that seems to be a healthy number in all the patients I test. Um, if you're low, you're going to be more like 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6. And mm-hmm. in, in CoQ10, you can check at Quest and CPL and then take a fancy lab. It's, it's a little difficult. Anyway, but so you can replace CoQ10. And the study found that if you can get your CoQ10 level over two, it actually has a blood pressure lowering effect. And that's not like to get over two, you're going to have to eat some serious organ meats, some heart and some, some livers and stuff. And I'm not all about that. So if you can get CoQ10, and there's numerous CoQ10s out there. I, I, I really haven't found any brand that's terrible. There's a ton of marketing out there. Don't spend money on the greatest CoQ10. doesn't matter if they call it Ubiquinol or whatever they're going to call it. Just buy a CoQ10 and take it. And then test your level. If it's over 2, great. You did a good job. I normally aim for 1.7, but over 2 for my blood pressure folks. Okay. If you're pooping back to poop, um, if you're taking CoQ10 and you're pooping red stuff, you're not absorbing it. So you should stop taking it. Not because it's bad, but because you're wasting your money. You're literally flushing it down the toilet. So um, so if you're pooping out red stuff when you take CoQ10, lower the dose, but you need to work on your digestion. If you can't break down fat-soluble CoQ10, you're probably not breaking down any other fat-soluble vitamins, and you've got some digestive work to do. You found your cause of blood pressure. You can't digest food, <laughs> so right. you have high blood pressure. Wow. What a great little tip, though, for being able to kind of test your digestion, so to speak. It's actually really common for if you take a 300 milligram CoQ10 pill, that's the regular CoQ10, and, and you poop out red, it's, it's, and it's weird. It's like oily red. I mean, when you open the CoQ10 bottle, you'll see their red mm-hmm. liquid capsules. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. The, the final point I, I had to make, and this is kind of a newer thing. I recently went to a conference in Seattle, learned a lot more about heavy metals, lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, all those things. And, and I forget which exact metal it was, but they pointed out multiple times that certain heavy metals are linked to high blood pressure. And the idea, I mean, it's simple to go back to energy manufacturing. If you can't manufacture energy, things aren't going to go well and the body enacts um, uh, inappropriate defense mechanisms to fix those energy deficits. So um, if you have too much lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, whatever the metal is, then that can interfere with your energy processes because you naturally have iron and magnesium and zinc and selenium and and calcium as part of your energy production pathways. So if you have too many heavy metals on board, it interferes with those normal metals. So all those things, all those elements I just listed, they're all metals. Your body can't really tell the difference very well between lead and iron. So you mm. can get lead in your blood cells, you can get lead in your mitochondria, and that can interfere with your, your, your energy production. And if you don't produce energy, your blood pressure goes up. Now, I, there's a lot longer explanation in there, but that's kind of the short and sweet of it. And I'll finish with one point that almost every patient I talk to 
Um, I test all of my patients for heavy metals eventually. It's not the beginning thing we do because we've got so many other things to fix usually. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, one of my frequent questions is, what heavy metals are you exposed to? I ask every patient that. And I can tell you unanimously, almost every patient says, none. I'm not exposed to any. But you know how many patients don't have heavy metals in them? None. Everyone has heavy metals in them. Now, do some have not quite so many? Yeah, I don't. I find some people don't have quite so many, mm-hmm. but pretty much about eighty to ninety percent of people, and I'm just shooting from the hip, eighty percent of people minimum have too many heavy metals in them that need to be extracted out. Wow. And the older you are, the longer you've been on this planet, the longer you've had to accumulate those heavy metals. And so this may sound weird and hokey, but if you have high blood pressure, it's very possible all those guns you shot in Texas had lead in the the gunpowder, and you breathe it in or you swept it up or whatever it may be there's heavy metals everywhere it's in your food it's in your water end of story right one of the um alarming things that i came across a couple years ago is that there was a consumer reports um all about protein powders and they looked at i don't know 90 different protein powders and they found uh dangerously high levels of heavy metals in like I, i wish i could remember the statistic but an alarming number of them and i thought you know well you could you could ask well how'd the heavy metals get into the highly processed protein powder um but i did a couple of videos on the topic and uh and in my you know, health coaching sessions with people, you know, a lot of people would, there was, it was confusing, you know, well, well, why would there be heavy metals in the protein powder? And I'm like, well, you got to think about processed foods. You know, what does that mean? That means Mm -hmm. that these foods are not being prepared in a kitchen. They're not, there's not a mixing bowl. Okay. It's gigantic machines and factories Mm -hmm. that the food is going through. And that is a great place to expose your foods to heavy metals. Um, So again, you know, just a diet high in processed foods. Um, which is most people. Mm-hmm. That's what most of us are eating. That's what I was eating my whole life. Um, you know, just a diet high in processed foods is exposing you to a high level of those heavy metals. Um, and especially when you're taking something like a protein powder, and lots of people will buy those huge oh, yeah. tubs of them, you know, drinking a couple of those every single day. Now mm-hmm. you're like concentrating, oh, yeah. uh, you know, concentrating those different products. Um, so it's just one little example of kind of how that exposure um, comes in all these real insidious ways. And mm-hmm. you're right, people will be like, I'm not exposed to heavy metals. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just don't think about you know, where those exposures can come from. Because we don't do the farming. So arsenics and rice, arsenics and chicken. And so to take this protein powder, you know, Mark Hyman said, I think he was the one that coined that, said, you're not what you eat, you're what your food eats. So if your cows ate this crappy feed that was used in farming and used arsenic and all kinds of stuff, well, the cows now have arsenic. Well, the cow's milk is going to have arsenic. And now Mm -hmm. you've isolated the cow's milk to a protein powder, which has arsenic. And so it's it's not a surprise, as you kind of said, well, gee, I wonder where it could come from. And it's highly processed food. It makes sense. You didn't prepare it. So it's it's hard to know where our food comes from and how clean it is, but we can just do the best we can. Right. 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 And then just trying to, you know, as much as you can, opt for natural foods in a minimally processed state. Um, And I'm thrilled that it is becoming um, more and more accessible to actually find those foods. Um, We're seeing, of course, more whole foods in central markets and stuff like that Mm -hmm. going up all over the place. Um, But even the prevalence of farmers markets and, you know, just this idea of even growing your own food um, is becoming a lot more prominent. And I know so many people who um, have been able to have uh, really great health improvements just by making this one simple switch to like, hey, rather than going to the supermarket, let's go to the farmer's market. Yeah. Let's just try to buy things that aren't in a box or wrapped in plastic or, you know, um, which is really the the standard, so to speak. And that's it, how... It definitely is the standard. Um, you know, how most people are, are raised nowadays and a lot of people don't even know how to cook. Um, so I think that there that is, <laughs> you know, I think that there is a, a, a shift happening as people are realizing, you know, how important it is just to, you know, you don't have to learn how to become the next top chef or something. Right. Um, but we've got to be able to learn how to prepare our own foods and how to make simple decisions to pick something a little bit more healthy that, um, is not going to hopefully be one of these factors right. that you've gone over today. Right. Anyone should be able to make a meat and a vegetable. Like, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Oil, salt, and pepper on your vegetables. Roast it, bake it, whatever you want to call it. Don't boil. You're fine. 
Don't boil it. <laughs> Don't boil it. Never boil your vegetables. Unless it's in a soup and you're going to consume the liquid. Because if you boil the vegetables, now we're getting way off topic. If you boil the vegetables, all the nutrients come out and then you throw the water down the sink, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you're going to boil the vegetables, it needs to be in a soup that you're going to drink the water. Excellent. Well, Dr. Oob, do you have any closing thoughts here about blood pressure? We covered a lot, and I just want to thank you so much for coming and joining me. Uh, one final thought, and you're welcome, is that you were not born with a blood pressure medicine deficiency. You were born with a normal blood pressure. So if you have high blood pressure, you should be looking for the cause, not just taking a medicine to squash it and not ask any questions. Now, if you have high blood pressure, you should be taking a medication while you investigate the root causes. But don't just take a medicine thinking that you just have to take that the rest of your life because that's what your doctor told you. Look for the answers. It's out there. You just got to find it. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. And I look forward to having you on the program again soon. Thanks. Me too. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. And I hope that you will consider supporting us on our Patreon page, where you can gain access to all of our premium content, a lot of fun exclusive content, and you're going to help us share this information with more people. And we are forever grateful for your support. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and be sure to visit us again soon. Thank you so much. The Wellness Plus Podcast. Copyright 2018. Target Public Media, LLC. All rights reserved.